Welcome to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. We're here today with Dr. Jeff Stern, child psychologist in Honolulu, Hawaii. Jeff is here to talk about child raising and education and all sorts of complicated and sometimes controversial issues having to do with the subject. Uh, Jeff, welcome to the show. Thanks, Aaron. Really happy to be here. Yeah, and you and I have known each other for quite a long time, I should say. You're another guest I'm having on the show that I have a long history with. Yes, uh, besides being at your wedding, which is quite an honor, uh, yes. uh, and saying the blessing over the wine, if you recall. I do recall. Uh, we go back to gra- early grad school days. And I'm remembering our time studying for the comprehensive exams. That was, what, about three or four years ago? <laughs> <laughs> three or four times ten? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, not that many. Yeah, do you remember that? That was I just, do. boy, was that stressful. It was, um, we had to kind of use time management skills and pace ourselves effectively. And, and nevertheless, I think it was a real marathon. Yeah, and you were commenting that even our approach to the way that we took that test and the stresses and pressures we put on ourselves sort of reminds you of this topic that we're discussing today. That's right. It's uh, very much uh, reminiscent of cramming for some big event because I didn't manage my time well or mm-hmm. because I underestimated the amount of time it would take. Um, which I think are skills that are really valuable that maybe not a lot of kids are learning independently in today's day and age. Yeah, and on top of that, just the pressure to succeed and perform. Mm. I mean, it's just really, I remember how strong that was when we were studying for Oh, yeah. Kids. If you recall, it was, if you don't pass comps, you don't move forward. You don't get to get your doctorate after all that we put in. I was like, uh-uh, that's right. not going to stop me. Right, right. There's a lot of pressure there. So I want to talk with you about this complicated topic about overscheduling children, raising children. And boy, I don't know if we're even going to come to any kind of conclusions, or maybe we'll come to some today. I really want it to be more of like an open-end discussion about the kind of pressures and stresses that parents have raising their kids. It's tough, you know, you and I are both parents, and we've been through it. And it's hard to know what's the best approach for your child. Yeah. So I want to meander through this with you today, pick your brain and talk about it. But first off, I think it would be great to get a little bit more background information about you. How did you get into this field, and where did your interest come from? Well, um, I kind of started getting involved in psychology back in high school. I was a natural fit for the peer counselor program at school. I was friends with everybody and very much lucky to be a young person growing up in Hawaii at a private school where I was only in one school from kindergarten all the way through 12th grade. And... So I knew a lot of people had a lot of relationships that were really valuable and helped me kind of grow up with good mentoring and and good peer mentoring. So very, very fortunate. That's kind of the whole social indicators of health kind of thing where I had a lot of positive things that helped to buoy me and get me in the right direction. Uh, And then so after peer counseling, I, I took psych and social in college and the natural fit was to try to start working in the field. I thought I was going to work with adults, but then my first job out of college was working with kids and I just loved the kids, just really enjoyed working with the kids with severe emotional and behavioral disturbances and kids with learning and neurodevelopmental disabilities. Um, And that's been my passion ever since. I've been involved in in that field for, oh, go on 30 years now. You also have a background with working with hearing impaired kids, right? Yeah, that's um, 
that was right when I started grad school in the late 80s. Uh, just had an interest in sign language as a way of finding something fun to learn to do while I was grunting away in grad school and huffing and puffing. In uh, meantime, I, I could, you know, have one night a week where I was letting my brain roll and, and learning something that I wanted to learn just for me. Right. And then it turned into a career. <laughs> yeah, and, and I should say you're fluent in sign signing, which is I amazing. used to be. I think my skills have deteriorated mm. considerably because of a lack of opportunity. I have still some close friends who are deaf and with whom I get the sign, but it's not nearly as frequent as it used to be. I was much stronger before. So tell us a little bit about your career path now and how we were getting into this topic about parenting. Well, I've always kind of been involved with working with kids, and so you, you can't do work with kids without doing work with parents. If you try and you're doing it in a vacuum, you're really not engaging in either ethical or best practices for sure because kids are not just individuals happening and growing and developing in, in a vacuum. So the different environments and require somewhat of a systems perspective at times and shifting into kind of being able to analyze what you're seeing people doing in terms of their parenting their, their specific behaviors, the things that they react to that they don't even realize that they're reacting to in ways that are not constructive. Right. So that's one big difference with working with children is the families are almost always involved at some level, yeah. both in the, the treatment and also assessing what the problems are and how everybody fits into the picture. Yeah. And um, because each person has their own issues and their own baggage that they're coming into these relationships with, it's very hard to allow for those things not to be the issue, but instead to be able to put and hold those issues in abatement for the time being while we focus on the child and what's going on for the child. And that's really hard for most people because they can't separate their stuff from what's going on with their kids. Well, let's start with this concept of the overscheduled child. Mm -hmm. Basically, like when we see child raising and child rearing and education, where does this concept of overscheduling fit in? Well, I first should, should share that in a diverse world, there's incredible variation. It isn't like this in other countries. I guess UNICEF says that I think maybe 17% of kids are still uh, engaged in labor. Young children in agrarian societies or societies that are um, not uh, westernized. I mean, there's that. There's uh, the whole social determinants piece. Where you grew up and what color your skin is and what, where you uh, come from demographic will predict a lot about whether you have access to the meritocracy or the opportunities to be able to have uh, self-determination or... or uh, what Maslow called the, in the hierarchy of needs, self-actualization. And so self-actualization is a reality for those who have the means to make it happen. And meritocracy in a traditional Western and American society is the vehicle for achieving that, which is this idea that those who do best in school and get the best grades and have the best opportunities then go on to give those same opportunities or better to their children and the money that funds these opportunities stays within the family and continues to build wealth. Okay, so a couple of important things going on here. So when we're talking about overscheduling, for one, we have to be clear that we're probably talking about middle United States American yeah. educational system and parenting, mm -hmm. because obviously a lot of people in a lot of different parts of the world may have other value systems or less opportunities. Correct. Let's just stay within that frame then. Keep that lens on. Take, keep I'm that lens you. on. Okay. What does this concept of overscheduling look like? Okay, um, the typical overscheduled kid, I'll give you my, my case example. 
child is a, a six-year-old female in first grade at a private school, and she is in six or seven additional extracurricular activities, tennis, uh, Mandarin, Japanese also, uh, robotics, piano, violin, swimming, and then uh, some sort of uh, advanced art class as well. Mm-hmm. And so every single day is, is uh, scheduled uh, around all the opportunities that the parents have been able to and want to afford to give to the child. Always well-meaning, but often without regard for what I would call the foundational cognitive skills of sustained attention and relationships, social relationship building and time management training and the ability to approach problems in a systematic way or uh, to be able to be thoughtful and mindful and developing kind of the infrastructure skills we want our kids to have, that that takes a backseat to skills building in the absence of social and all these other factors that are important in terms of what helps a child to achieve. It's not just skills, but parents are, I think, are stuck in the trap of overscheduling their children to give them skills. So you mentioned that it's well-intentioned, first yeah. of all. Like all parents want the best for their kids, and what they're choosing to do with their children, enroll them in different kinds of activities, give them skills, they have a reason why they're doing it that's well-intentioned. What and is culturally you... consistent. That's a, I think okay. I want to kind of share that point. Because in Asian, not all, but in some Asian families, there's a strong need to, uh, for the child to succeed academically. And so all those successes, it's much more about the fact that it reflects on the family. Mm-hmm. And that the success of the individual is, is irrelevant. It's, it's how the family looks and its standing um, that is predicated on the performance of their children academically and in, and other, in any area that's involving competition. So there's a part of this that the child is a representative of the family oh, yeah. and has some relation to the family to succeed and do well to... And bring honor. Bring yeah. honor. Okay. Oh, yeah. And that what you said academically. Yeah. There's variation there culturally and in, there's individual differences too. I found that in my experiences, certain ethnic groups are much less about that and they just want the child to do what they what the child wants to do and they are much more followers and they don't overschedule their kids. If anything, they may be more on the neglectful side or appear so to others because they're really trying to let the child be magical, so to speak, and, and self-determining. Yeah. So we'll get to that too. I want to talk about that end of the spectrum as well. I'm mm-hmm. glad you bring that up. So the academics is important. So why enroll a child in violin, piano, Mandarin, Spanish, advanced 3D imaging, ancient Japanese pottery? What are the reasons for all these other extracurricular things that have to take up everybody's, uh, the kid's time? I think it's multiple. Like you mentioned in the very beginning of the show, there's a lot of factors that contribute to it. We can talk about social factors, which is, like I mentioned, how they look among their friends in society, among uh, as a family, uh, bringing honor to their family and socially. I think there's biological belief that their child has a gift, and it's just a matter of finding that gift and helping that child to identify their special talent and interest and gift that they might have that God gave them, and that they are going to do everything they can to help this kid find that gift. Because lo and behold, if you just leave the kid alone, they'll probably never stumble across it. That's the belief. So we yeah. need to give 
the child as many opportunities as possible to find it. And to cultivate it. Even if it's not apparent that they have passion for it, they may still have a gift for it. So a cognitive it, piece. So is it kind of like the parent would say, all right, let's uh, try violin. Uh, okay, violin doesn't seem like the gift, so let's move on to piano. That doesn't seem like the gift. Let's <laughs> move on to cello. Let's move on to saxophone. Let's move on to this, that. Right. I think most parents are trying to like look for signs, and if they see their little six-month-old in the crib singing and humming, and they think, wow, he's got perfect pitch. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and next thing you know, they're trying to identify... Given the child's strengths and weaknesses, maybe they seem to be very dexterous with their fingers. We'll put them in instruments that involve fingering and and playing like a violin. So, Jeff, are they looking for the prodigy? Like, are parents looking for, like, let's figure out what makes my child a prodigy so that they can grow up and be a superstar? Like, do you think that's part of the motivation? I think there's a a nature nurture piece to it. Mm. It reminds me of that film I recently saw. Rocket Man? Is that, was that the film? It was uh, based upon um, the life of Sir Elton John, right? Right. And in that, the grandmother and the mom realize that their little, the little boy has an interest in something. So they you know, enroll him and, and get him lessons. And then that turns into, you know, your child has a lot of talent here. So they push, push, push now because, up, oh, this could get him a scholarship. This can give him opportunities to excel. Uh, and he could be great at it. So let's make him do it because he could be great at it. But then I've seen kids who not only could be, but already are great at the age of 12 or 13, and they're like being Olympic consideration for sports and so forth, only to see the wheels come off when the child does not really like what they're doing and mm-hmm. feeling that they're being pushed. Andre Agassi is a perfect example of that. Mm-hmm. He wrote about it in his biography. So that has to do with being pushed and burning out. Oh, yeah, big time. And I was going to ask you about that. Is that something that happens from these overscheduled kids? that they are pushed to do all of these things and burn out on it? How common is that? That's a good question. I can only speak on clinical experience. I did a little bit of a search, but I didn't really find much in terms of burnout uh, from overscheduling. But a lot of literature talking about overscheduling. So you're asking a question that I don't have, like, empirical evidence to support an answer to. So your clinical... My clinical opinion is that I'd say a lot depends on the nature-nurture thing. And that certain kids, it's a good combination, and the nature and the nurture work together to create synergy. And then that kid, you know, becomes an expert in something and maybe follows it their whole life. But I think even in that situation, there has to come a point. It's sometimes it's longer than a year. Sometimes it's just a day when that individual makes a decision that they really do have a passion for this. They really do want to see this forward and, and keep going. That's the child coming up with yeah. that decision. And at some point, the challenge then, and the reason why we see burnout is because the child doesn't feel that that decision is in their hands. Mm-hmm. That decision is in parents' hands. And if the parent is deciding for the child, that's going to create a sense of disdain and burnout. So I could see two ways that an overzealous parent might go with this. The overzealous parent might say, let's just bombard our child with everything and see what sticks. And mm-hmm. so the child is overscheduled with lots of different things Mm -hmm. that's the idea of like on which thing does my child have glom on right yeah yeah and i could also see the other one like we're going to push our child to do piano or math or whatever it is and just focus on that all the time because like with practice makes perfect if you have if you push the child enough on one thing they'll gain mastery of it either way it's just a lot coming at the child that might not be so much the child's decision mm-hmm. do you get the sense like either 
either way is better or worse for the child's development or mental health or emotional development? Well, a good question. I think that parents who are directing their child's future that way and extremely zealous and trying to find out what sticks and, and giving them all these opportunities, invariably, no matter which way you go at that, if the outcome is the same, which is that we found something that my child likes and we're going to force them to do it against their will potentially, or we're going to see you know, how far this takes us as a family, not just him or her, then you're going to see problems. And that's, that ties into this loss of a uh, sense of no autonomy, no control over, over what I, I'm going to do and being told. Everything is being told to me. Now, this generation, um, they're used to being easy access to things and being told things. But I see a lot of parents kind of moving against that to try to make it a little bit more of a nature-nurture blend where they see what the child's interested in um, before throwing a whole bunch of things at the child to see what sticks. Hmm. They'll make a more educated guess and say, well, he's showing interest in this and this potential there. It runs in the family. Uncle was an artist, and he's just drawing up a storm at age four. Let's see where this takes him. But I'm also seeing that tempered with this idea of technology and the future and what kinds of jobs are going to be in demand and, and wanting to make sure that the meritocracy is served. So the, the, one of the major complicating factors is the idea of the dynamics of the 21st century and how fast everything is changing and the job market and the whole gig economy idea is, is really, I think, throwing everything uh, that I, I think we know as psychologists and professionals in this field into a bit of a, oh, no, now what are we going to do with all these pressures brought to bear? And that's almost like there's a smaller and smaller pot of gold that these parents are now shooting for. And so, like, you'll see these snowplow parents like Lori Laughlin and, and these parents who are trying to do whatever they can to get their kids the opportunities because they believe that, that, that you need to have that advantage now. Otherwise, there's, no, there's not much hope. So is that true? <laughs> is that an actual true statement that... In this meritocracy, there's a smaller pot of gold, and the child needs to be very competitively placed in order to survive in the future? No. There's absolutely no evidence to support that. Okay. I'm going to put it out there firmly. <laughs> what there is evidence to support is the idea that people still believe that their kid has to go to an Ivy League school or that their kid has to have the best opportunities in order to achieve at the highest levels. That the kid who's going to, you know, UH Hilo isn't going to be the next president of the United States. That's the assumption. Or the next CEO of IBM or right. whatever, right? And, and the fact of the matter is the child who goes to UH Hilo is probably not going to be the next president of the United States, and neither is the child at Harvard, right? That's right. <laughs> That's exactly right. And I was uh, kind of disappointed to learn when I was in teaching it and working at a private school and disappointed to learn that the sheer volume of parents who are still firmly entrenched in that belief and don't seem to get the fact that your child is going to do great as long as they go to a school that's a good fit. Well, so now we're getting into talking about colleges and I wanted to ask yeah. to what degree does that play into this conversation? Are parents obsessed with college and their children getting into college and which college they go to oh yeah and that's a part of the meritocracy it's like some of the kids that i've worked with their parents feel like they have to go to a top 15 or top 20 school in order for their child to have a chance and that it's not a if or or, or what do we do if it's like 
they have their mind set on it. Some of this has to do with another complicating factor, which is parents living their dreams and hopes out in their children vicariously. Mm. So it's like, I wanted to be a professional musician, so the fact that my child has musical proclivity and is really uh, gifted, I'm, I'm going to try to force him to go to music school, and I'm going to get him into Juilliard if it takes every dollar in my bank account to get him there so that he can become this world-famous musician, which is something I dreamed of but never could do. And I'm going to do better by my child by giving my child the future that they dream of rather than the one that I, you know, I had. So that's getting back into some of these psychological factors and systems factors that I'm glad you're bringing that up. And I don't know how aware parents are of this usually, but the idea that the pressures I'm putting on my child to do X, Y, and Z are because of my feelings of failures or inadequacies that's pushing the pressure I'm putting on them. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm sorry I keep on jumping around topics on you a little bit. <laughs> it's okay. But I kind of had a feeling that's the way this interview was going to go. <laughs> I know you long enough. Yeah. Um, but to kind of get to the question you're asking specifically, I, I wanted to get on the whole meritocracy piece yes. at length because... It's really this belief that those who uh, only those who have these opportunities are going to be successful. And I have friends, um, many friends who are physicians and lawyers and uh, all different types of well-respected professions who went to public school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I had one that went to public and one that went to private, and they're both doing just fine. And they both have similar opportunities to go to college and to explore their futures. But ironically, in Hawaii, it's like such a you know, public versus private mentality. Yeah, it is. Without really, and, and again, that speaks to the fact that parents have this in their mind, that this is how you got to do it, that the education available to kids out there in the public sector is so inferior to the education they've been sold uh, that uh, is available to them in the private sector that they are going to do whatever they need to sacrifice-wise to make sure their kid goes. But in return, their kid has to perform. It's almost like if you don't perform in private school, I'm going to threaten to take you out and make you go to public school. It's like, like a, it's a form of punishment. Oh, totally. <laughs> it is totally like leverage. Like, uh, you know, you have to have these great opportunities, and I'm giving them to you, but only if you perform. Is that scary to kids to hear that they might have to go to the evil public school, the ones that go to private school anyway? It's fear-based intimidation yeah. to control behavior, which we know is, and this goes back to the overall overarching issue of parenting. I imagine that must create a lot of anxiety and stress for the kids. Enormous. I mean, just just pressure that whether it's you're in a private school and we're going to demote you to public school or whatever, just the idea that if you're not doing as well as we think you should be doing, you can face some kind of a punishment of some sort. Right. And the punishment is like your future will be taken away from you kind yeah. of an attitude. And yes, these kids have major anxiety and depression issues. So, so Jeff... Uh, and the pro- I want to get to that also a little bit later, too, the clinical mm-hmm. presentation of kids. Okay, 3.0 average versus 3.5 average versus 4.0 average. Uh, does any of that matter in the greater picture, the, the GPA, in terms of the success of the kid and how they do in the future? Well, there is some indication that kids who who learn critical thinking skills and these kinds of abilities at a younger age, they often and are given the proper kind of parenting model, which is much more scaffolding than it is directive, that those kids um, often have high achievement scores. But there's so many things that factor into achievement, it's hard to determine how much variance one particular variable might have that the, comp- the research is very complicated. Hmm. So um, you're saying there yeah. may be some correlation between GPA and success, 
but it may not be a causality thing. Oh, for sure. I think there's a correlation there, and but that the correlation is also tied to college graduation, and it's the college graduating from college is correlated with a higher income mm-hmm. than just a high school grad, and then getting a master's or an advanced degree is correlated with a higher income than having only a high school diploma or a college degree. Mm-hmm. But again, you cannot say it's causal because of all the factors that weigh into that. Sure, and then we get to college, so. I'm just throwing this out here, but the kid with the 3.2 average doesn't get into Stanford. And so they go to a small liberal arts school or they go to a University of Oregon, University of Washington, something that it's a little easier to get in with GPAs and SAT scores and all of that. Mm -hmm. Are there going to be any differences between the success from the graduate from one versus the graduate from the Ivy League school? Only in terms of opportunities. So sometimes there's such a strong alumni movement or or support system that comes out of a specific school, let's say USC, that provides the advantage, that gets a a young person a foot in the door. Um, So it's the affiliation. Oh, yeah. It's the relationships that you forge in those institutions. You can go to a really small school that has a really influential professor who's like, you know, um, done a lot of research or is engaged in the community in special ways, and you become close with that professor and have a relationship, that can turn into something, even if you're not a particularly strong academic student, but have really good social skills mm-hmm. and, and, and very something that's the X factor for this particular person who feels that there can be, well, for lack of better concepts, money in it. Mm-hmm. So basically then having a really good GPA and going to a really well-respected college may afford you some advantages because you may be mingling with very driven students who network and connect with each other and support each other. But there's no reason why somebody going to a state school or another school that can't forge relationships with people and what they're doing, professors or other fellow students, and do that as well. I kind of want to make a distinction here for you. Yeah. And the distinction I want to make has to do with the opportunities that are afforded. It's not like they're going to have a better life. It's just that they're going to probably follow the path that their parents want for them. Mm. That path is more easy. If I wanted to be my kid to become a, a film director, and I, I had connections at USC Film School because I went to USC, and then I use those to help my child get connected, or my child uses those connections to get into film school, and then goes on to have a great opportunity, that's all depending on the fact that that child has to want to go to film school. Mm-hmm. What if all this is happening and the child does not really want to do that but doesn't know what they want and figures this is the low-hanging fruit. Dad and mom are pushing it and they're asking me and they think I have potential in it. They're my parents. They know and I don't want to go against my parents and I don't even know what I want to do right now. I just assume just do whatever. So this is as good as anything. I'm not at 23. I don't know what I want. So that, that's actually the most common thing is that they have these advantages, but they're really advantages in the parents' eyes. In their eyes, in the kids' eyes, they really aren't sure what to make of it, except that they have a great opportunity. But what if they, there's pressure? What if they don't want to do this? And they're doing it because it's, they're fulfilling their parents' wants and needs and not their own. I see. That's but they don't know what their own are, so it's, compl- it's complicated. I think that's a very important distinction to make, so thank you for that. I want to talk a little bit about this other end of the spectrum, which I think is really fascinating, and mm. I've done some research about this looking into it. It's just interesting stuff how some parents, it, I don't know if it's a backlash to the overparenting, overscheduling, or if it's just naturally some parents are like this, but it's this 
other end of not putting pressure on my child at all, not requiring any extracurricular activities. I've heard of this unschooling movement where some parents are not even putting their kids in school. They're just offering them opportunities to explore the world around them, maybe providing things at home for them to do. And of course, homeschooling is somewhere in between there where the child's at home, but the parents are providing the educational opportunities. Can you talk a little bit about this phenomenon of the other end of the spectrum of parenting? Do you see that in your practice or have you come across that? Well, a lot of times I don't get to see those parents. More often than not, they are either the kid's doing great, and so there's, there's no need to see a psychologist because they don't believe in the wellness movement as much as psychologists helping people who are having a problem. Mm-hmm. I might see those kids for coaching where the child has shown an interest in something and the parents want to help the child achieve it, but always in response to the child's initiations, not their own insistence or pressure. When I do see these kids... The problem is that their parents have been so much, whatever you want, bud, we're friends, bud, that the child ends up going into bad things. Most of the time, it's a substance use issue. They're not getting a lot of direction and supervision from their parents, and they just sort of meander out and meet kids that they use drugs with. Uh, yeah, well, they'll, they'll, it depends on what they get interested in. Yeah. Let's say they get interested in surfing. Well, then they, they're going to get exposed to surfing culture type stuff like drugs. And mm-hmm. same with skateboarding or some other sports. Uh, they might even get involved in academic pursuits that they really have passion for. Mm-hmm. Um, but their parents just aren't engaged in it. So because the parents aren't engaged in it, they're just kind of on their own to do whatever. And as much as that sounds like it'd be a good fit for Western culture and, and the idea of individualism and each child is out there to try to find their true self and identity and, and what they're going to be good at and pursue their purpose in life. Very Western, by the way, and, and kind of a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant kind of mindset, mm. uh, in my opinion. When we don't give them that kind of guidance, it's going to be a free form and, and potentially free for all. One of the major researchers back in the 20th century, and this is Vygotsky and his idea of this zone of proximal development, that the idea is to try to promote uh, in kids the areas above what they can do independently. And so um, we know from his research and research for those who followed him that that educational process leads to the highest levels of retention and learning in kids. That it's like if someone doesn't know how to fix out a toilet, you don't just throw them in there and make them do it and say, you'll figure it out. That's above their zone of proximal development, what they can do independently. What they can probably do independently is watch a YouTube video, and maybe um, what they can do independently is get the right product from the store. So you might have a child doing, you know, helping you, what should we get? What do we get for this project or whatever? And so they can help you, and you give them some support, or if it's an adult, the same kind of thing applies. But then the the goal is to give them opportunities to be successful um, with as little support as needed for them to achieve either success or failure, but to learn positively from the experience. So parents who are trying to raise their kids in this way, you had mentioned earlier the idea of like getting out of the way of the child, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean getting out of the way and disappearing completely. Right. So the the, um, the one that comes up a lot is this idea of managing their children's internet usage mm. or phone usage. Denise Pope did a bunch of research in this. What she had found was that a lot of times we're trying to control so they the parent will monitor the child's use or confiscate the phone and look through all the sites that the child has visited they're basically doing heavy duty policing of their child's behavior 
That, I would argue, is not good zone of proximal development kind of training. It's not good parenting because um, you're not teaching the child to make good choices. You're thinking at level one and not at level two, where it's like, what's going to help the child to have more moralistic mindset? What's going to help the child to be more planful and mindful of their time? So these parents are saying, I have to get rid of the uh, internet and I got to shut it off because my child's not doing their homework. Well, that's because the other stuff is more interesting to the child than their homework. So uh, the answer to that is probably much more complicated than we could have a conversation yeah. about. I was just going to say, this is a whole other can of worms that we should it, probably yeah. just have a whole other <laughs> podcast episode about the use of m- social media and media and screen time and all right. that. Right. I guess the, the point I wanted to get yeah. to about it was the idea that parents are using that as their litmus test for parenting mm-hmm. rather than monitoring and, and kind of being on there and doing it, engaging in the child in, in a very punitive way regarding its use is to take the time, which parents don't have, to sit down with the child and actually do it with them. Mm-hmm. Go online and show them stuff and help them to learn how to do appropriate searches. And basically that's scaffolding. That's the stuff that they can't do independently, but that you show them how, and then kind of give them a little bit more room to try to grow in and learn about it in a way that's non-judgmental, but not in a way that's controlling. I see. Yeah. So we've got this spectrum then. We've got these over-scheduled kids that are being prepped to participate in this meritocracy, as you described it. And we have, on the other end of the spectrum, the more permissive parents with, who let the kids go out and explore and figure out their interests. And I don't know if you have any data or information about the outcomes of both of these two styles of parenting, but what are your thoughts like? Is there anything we can say about the end result, level of happiness, success, however that looks, for the two different styles? Is there anything we can look at? I think the research has moved from either or to one of modeling, okay. which is like, what's the best fit? What's the best fit line to, to fit the data we have? So the best fit is, given this child's proclivities and interests and passions and developmental trajectory and, and strengths and weaknesses, and the parenting style and the parenting interests and the way the parents are and how they were raised and their values and so forth, what's going to be the best fit line that's going to help the two to kind of create synergy or help the child to actually achieve and be satisfied with what they're doing in in their lives. Well, that makes perfect logical sense from an academic standpoint. How do parents figure this out in real life? Well, let's take, I think there you're going to be very um, concrete. So it's uh, example would be, where do I put my child into school? What school would be best for my 11 year old who is considering, we're trying to consider private school next year. It's like, well, on the one hand, the controlling parent is going to try and get their kid into the school that they went to or the school that they think is best without considering what may be the best fit for their child, mm-hmm. where their child's strengths and weaknesses are going to be the best fit. On the other hand, uh, there's uh, the parents who just say, you know, we're going to save our money for college and not try to get the child into any private school and not worry about that. And then the child, maybe there's risks and benefits to that, but if the permissive parent, the child is then free to do whatever they want, and they may end up not even being very motivated academically because there was a study in, out of L.A. school district that showed only 17% of their kids were actually engaged and ready to learn in the public school system at L.A. And I think that's we have a very high dropout rate here, too, in school. 
So there's the risk of being too permissive and just letting your kid go to public school without any concern for their education and whatever they choose to do is fine because then that could get away from you as well. And am I hearing you say that a lot of that decision really may depend on the particular child? Yeah, because there may be the kid who does great being left by themselves and figures it all out on their own and their parents are seen as geniuses for having been permissive and given them the kid the space to grow. And then there's the ones who I see where the parents were very permissive and the child went right into drugs and all kinds of other things. In that case, what I see is kids who are impulsive and, you know, particularly boys with impulsivity and not a lot of structure, they're the ones who often will will get themselves into trouble. So what I'm hearing you say is that parents really have to be very aware of their children, their personalities, their particular needs, their learning styles. I think it's a combination of awareness and humility. I think parents have to be humble to the fact that they can't control these things, but that they should be seeing what their child is giving them rather than trying to read what they want to read into what their child is doing. That makes sense, yeah. So let's talk about problems. Okay. So you're a clinical psychologist. You've seen your share of problems with a family and problems with children. What are the most common problems that you see with these children, and how can you relate it, at, at, if at all, to the overscheduling, to the permissiveness? I think um, the problems that I see are poor time management among young people. They don't know how to schedule stuff and coordinate stuff. Depending on the parenting that they've had, a lot of kids who had parents who were over-controlling don't know how to do things for themselves. They have to be handheld through a lot of stuff, like applying for grad school. They couldn't do it on their own. They need mom or dad to make the spreadsheet for them and to help them write and, and edit their personal statements and set up timelines and reminders on their phones for them to get this or that signed or get this or that application completed. Mm. So I see that as a big problem. These kids just don't know how to do all that stuff. They have a hard time doing things on their own because their parents have been so involved with doing them for them. Correct. Okay. We talk about those as kind of like the snowplow type parents. Mm-hmm. And the best thing that, that can you can do if that's you're, you know, you're worried that that's you is to pull out pull back big time on, on your parenting and and begin to try to be more passive and responsive to the child. But because Jeff, what if, what if the child, you leave it up to them, and they forget to turn in a, an assignment, and they get an F? Then they get an F, and they learn from it. That's, I mean, you're hitting it right in the middle of the square <laughs> of the head. That's exactly right. That's the fear. The parent is they're going to get an F, and they're going to this, and they're going to that. But then it's going to be the child's F, and the child has to learn that it's representing them, not their parents, mm-hmm. or their parenting. It's like... Yeah, that's a danger. There's a huge double edge to that sword because the parents then feel badly that they they let go. And now look what happened, doctor, you stupid doctor. Well, I'm also (laughs) wondering if they if they get the F, I mean, is the child going to care? I wonder if the parents worry that the child's just not going to care. And so they're just going to get Fs. No, no, that, that that's a total misunderstanding of the nature of the kids. That gives them very little credit for having their own sense of what they want to be able to do. No kid likes an F. No kid likes an F. The only way a kid possibly could like an F is if it gets the mom and dad off their back. If It's like, will you leave me alone if I fail this? Will you leave me alone? Okay, I failed it. Leave me alone. No, I, I joke. Um, right. No, I got it. If I had a nickel, I always use that line. If I had a nickel for every kid that I've seen who... Um, got an F and were super stressed out about it because they're going to now get a bad grade or they start to hyperbolize the situation and start talking about how it's the, the sky is falling, basically, and they pull Chicken Little. It takes 
all kinds of interventions to get them to let go of this worry. That it's, and, and the best thing for it, it's like it's anxiety. And the best thing for anxiety is exposing them to the things they're anxious about so that they become desensitized and they learn to have more control over the outcome by planning. Yeah, and one thing I'm hearing here, and tell me if I'm getting this correct, is the F isn't such a big deal in the greater scheme of things. But if the result of the F is the child wants to do better because he or she doesn't want the F because he or she intrinsically wants to succeed in the things that are important, then that will be a learning opportunity. But if what the F represents is my parents are going to be disappointed in me, my teachers are going to be disappointed in me, I've done bad, I've let everybody down, uh, we've got a potential problem here. Right, because it goes beyond the individual test to be a personification of who they are. I'm a failure. Mm-hmm. I'm a bad person. They I'm a disappointment. Correct. internalize those feelings about themselves. And Jeff, that's when I get them as adults. <laughs> the ones that come into my office and have the, they have these core feelings of shame, mm-hmm. uh, lack of competency, feeling like they're never good enough. Mm-hmm. They show perfectionistic traits because if they mess up at something, it's the end of the world for them. It, it reflects badly upon them as a person. So that's at the spectrum where I see them. Yeah. So when I catch them at the, at the younger ages, and when they, this is starting to emerge early, it comes across as a lot of anxiety. And you, mm-hmm. in this population in Hawaii, a lot of somatization, a lot of physical symptoms. These kids get a lot of headaches and a lot of stomach aches. They often have to be excused from class to go get Tylenol or because they, you know, the, the nurses are giving them Tylenol and giving them water to drink and making sure that you're just dehydrated Mm -hmm. when the truth is it's more than just dehydration. They're fully stressed out because they're worrying that they're not going to do good enough. They're not going to perform well enough. Some parents in some cultures will punish a kid physically for not getting straight A's. Mm -hmm. And that's not good. No. (laughs) So one of the first first things that parents (laughs) should look out for are these somatic complaints, headaches, stomach aches, things like that are probably, they may be underlying an anxiety problem that could be stemming from pressures for school. I imagine there's other pressures too that could be creating anxiety in a child, social stuff. A lot of that. Yeah. Well, don't, don't forget the other half of this coin. I would call it a whole coin. Mm-hmm. The other half of the coin has to do with when you're focusing so much on kids being scheduled and doing stuff that you forget to teach them the, the, the foundational stuff, mm. like how to manage their money mm. and what financial literacy is, uh, how to uh, be planful and organized and systematic in problem solving and critical thinking skills and thinking slow, to use Kahneman's comment again, of instead of thinking fast. And being a parent, another suggestion would be that parents work on themselves trying to do more critical thinking, thinking slow, thinking how will this affect my child's future. And, and it's their future, not mine. And being humble about that recognition that how grateful they are to be in a position that they can give their child the support. So if you're that grateful, why don't you think, Think deeply about what would be best for the child, not what's best for you. And I imagine that sometimes what's best for the child isn't necessarily shooting to be the president of the United States, the CEO of the next Fortune 500 company, or uh, starting up a startup company in Silicon Valley that's going to have an IPO and make the person millions and millions of dollars. Yeah. To their credit, educational leaders are trying hard to keep and make the educational opportunities more engaging and more interesting to kids so they don't get bored. Mm-hmm. So they have a, an, an easier time of uh, finding what they want to do. 
but we're competing against uh, kids uh, in math and science, for example. People often comment on how American kids are so far behind their Chinese and their Indian peers and kids from other countries that are doing, you know, in fourth grade what our kids are doing in ninth grade. Mm. And somehow we're not, we're not, we're blowing it. But in Western American culture, pushing your kid that hard is more likely to cause damage than it is to result in your child becoming the next Nobel Prize winner. Well, I often hear and see this idea that parents are watching their kids very carefully to see when they're picking up certain skills. So like, some people maybe in another country or at another school or even comparing to friends, children are, say, reading at a sixth grade level when they're in third grade. And my child is still maybe reading at a mid-second grade level at third grade. And mm -hmm. so my child is falling behind here. Yep. And this really doesn't bode well for his or her future. I see that more than anything. The thing I see most common, and since you asked the question clinically, is these kids who, whose parents are concerned that their kid has somehow got a learning disability or some sort of a, a cognitive disability or problem because they're not doing as well as they feel that their, child, their child's underachieving. Mm -hmm. And so rather than kind of chalk up the reasons for underachievement, including a non-engaging environment or their teachers don't really um, have the chops or that there are too many distractions going on in the home, um, they want to um, instead indict their child for not being motivated enough and not working hard enough, and then they'll indict the school for not doing a good job of, of educating their child. Mm. And they'll, they'll be insisting that the school innovate and make changes, and they'll push. And the reality is it's not that big of a deal in the greater scheme of things? I guess in the moment, it feels like it's everything because your quality of life is so heavily impacted by all that stuff mm -hmm. on the day-to-day. -day. But uh, when, you, when you look at it in terms of a marathon, um, the fact that they'll finish the marathon is great and they're going to have acute success if you don't worry about how fast they finish it. Yeah. If you just let them finish it at their pace and not worry about what is supposed to be and what are the norms and how my child isn't... isn't I mean, there's important reasons for early identification of real problems, um, but those should be really readily apparent. And it's the kids um, who have real problems often that, that get, get the real support, and that's helpful, but we cast such a wide net, and we get all these other parents who, because of meritocracy issues or because of their own cultural values and real push on their kids, that these are the ones who are, are saying, my kid's only getting six hours or five hours of sleep a night. Um, he pushes himself so darn hard to get all his work done. It's like, well, yeah, but who is making him go to the school and who's making him take Japanese school after school and who's making him take Mandarin on Saturdays and who's making him take, you know, cutting into all his time and insisting that he be, a, you know, uh, a world-class athlete as well. That's going to cause problems for anybody, not just for, you know, your child. So you can't be blaming the child or the system. You're the parent mm -hmm. at some point. We often, at this generation, we give our kids too many choices. We say, well, what would you like to do? So one of the additional things I would like to recommend and I do with my clients as a rule of thumb is I say when it comes to extra things like besides school and, or, you know, chores, two things is what I try to recommend. Make them do one thing that you know they need. Like for my son, it was he needed discipline. So I got him into martial art mm. and felt like, you, you know, you may not like this, but guess what? You get, you're going to do it. And there's no coming out. You're doing it. And, and your I'll, son ended up loving martial arts, right? Yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah. 
He did, and he had a couple important moments that helped him to love it, where he was having failure and then had finally a success, which mm-hmm. is part of the scaffolding piece that is such a big part of it. There's also these, you know, there's this pressure to be able to, to achieve all those things, and, and I'd rather that there be some goal setting that happens on the part of the kid, or consideration for the kid's viewpoint. As parents, we do make our decisions, and we're responsible. So you have one that the kid gets to choose as well. And that's, that's like, I choose this for you, and you're going to have to do this. But in exchange for this, and in consideration of your desire to be an autonomous human being and follow your own interests, you get to pick something that you want to learn, too. Jeff, what if the child says, you know, I don't really want to do anything. I, I just sort of want to chill. I'll go to school. I'll try to do well in school. But I don't really want extracurricular activities after that. I kind of want to just relax, do my thing, do my homework, not be stressed out. Is that that's, okay? Oh, that's brilliant. I wish really? there were more kids like that. It's pretty rare. I, I, I'm never, I don't get to see that very often. Well, are they missing out, though, because they didn't become a prodig- prodigy and they didn't tap into that thing that if they had only taken that extracurricular thing, been exposed to it, that they might become a great piano player or a magnificent Michelangelo? They might be a great father, too. Uh, you know, a teenage father as well. <laughs> right. So there's, there's, there's a lot of things that that go into this. I would prefer to see the parent who is passive and let, waited until their child showed them an interest or came to them and saying, I want to do this. But at the same time, I would be also exposing the child to all kinds of different things. And in the car, you're going to listen to different types of music. And, you know, we're going to go to the zoo and we're going to go look at animals and we're going to go to the art store and, and we're going to try to do some painting and, and fool around with this and that. And see what the child seems to want to like to do. Yeah, and I want to make a point, and tell me if whether you think this has merit to it or not, this idea that this exposure to activities, or exposure to stuff, whatever it is, you're listening to things in the radio in the car, you're checking things out in your environment, the impact that that might have on the child's interests and pursuing interests may not even manifest until adulthood. You may not right. even see it in childhood. Oh, yeah. And there's also the common one where the child is exposed to something at a young age and is, gets tired of it. But then if, if everybody backs off and just gives them room, it comes back around because there's a seed in there and they really did like it. It was just being suffocated by pressure. Mm-hmm. It's okay and good to expose your kids to lots of stuff, but try to be passive about the pressure piece and allowing the child to decide what they really would like to pursue and then giving them the, the opportunities to pursue those things in moderation, not like to the exclusion of, of their responsibilities. So ideally, you, you want a couple priorities to be straight. And for me, kids, their number one priority is to, is to learn. And then the second one is to have fun. Mm-hmm. And so I, I try to see if we can achieve both of those things in their schooling. And then beyond that, then we're getting into these, the fine-tuning of discipline, you know, the kid who needs the discipline versus the kids who are very self-disciplined, not every kid needs that. But every kid does need a good foundation of, of responsibility and preferably of being able to make smart, healthy choices. But you can't force a kid to make them. They have to kind of come to that developmental stage. I love it when I hear, I laugh, when I hear parents ask their kids, why'd you do that? You know, and the kid's five or six. It's like, mm-hmm. you're not going to get a very good answer. I guarantee it. You're saying you're asking because you want to ask, but you have to understand child development doesn't work that way, and kids don't have the capacity to give you a why until they're reached a higher age of a higher level of cognitive functioning and processing. And maybe even expecting to have a why in the first place isn't the right thing to ask because maybe people just 
do things because they feel compelled to do it and they don't have a good answer for it. That's right. Even as a teenager. Right. So I'm, I'm suggesting that at the young ages, you uh, give them opportunities. And if kids show interest, you let them pursue them, but you don't force it. Uh, I, but then at some point around the time where they're you know, 12 or 13, their adolescence kicks in and they start to have a higher level of understanding of their, the nature of things and, and start to identify with some interests and, and uh, strengths uh, is that you go strengths-based and you really focus a lot on what their strengths and passions are and not be so critical of the things that they're weak in because that's so much of what the negative messaging is to our kids is you need to fix the areas where you're weak. Because the areas of strength are always going to be there, but you need to be well-rounded and Machiavellian. Mm-hmm. And the, the truth of the matter is, that's just not how the uh, how evolution has been evol- You know how it's been working. It's been more like those who are really, really good at certain things, they're going to rise to the top of those things, and they're going to excel. Right. You let the hunters go hunt, and the ones aren't so good at hunting, you let them make pottery or do something else that they're really good at. Right. It doesn't make sense to make the potters be hunters and the hunters be potters. Of course. Yeah. So, Jeff, you know, we could talk about, we could go on for hours talking about this stuff. <laughs> we could talk about anything for hours. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably true. Do you have a few last words or thoughts that you want to leave us with today that you think would be uh, uh, interesting or helpful that we haven't covered? I think the role of coaching is undervalued. I'd like to see more parents do more coaching style of parenting where, you know, they encourage, they give instruction and they, and then they just sit and, and like the classic local baseball coach for the little league team, just kind of watch your kid. And if they strike out, put your hand on the shoulder and say, good try. And if they hit it, get a hit and you say, good job. But, um, let the peers kind of, uh, support the, the developmental process. It's not all about you. A lot of times as kids get older, their peers and their friends are much more influential you don't want to try to control their friendships, but what you can do is, is, is support them and making good choices and being a good friend and helping them to be kind to other people and have those values and those morals. So coaching is about sort of encouraging and supporting and less about directing. Correct. Got it's it. much less directive. It's much more responsive. A coach doesn't get out there and say, this is what you need to do. A coach waits and watches you and sees what you're doing and mm-hmm. says, if you want to achieve these goals, these are some things you probably want to adjust or improve on. Based upon what I'm seeing, these are some things that you can do that will help you to achieve your goals. But it's based upon a, a child-centered or family-centered approach, right? right, of what they're bringing. It's not like there's one size fits all and this is the answer. It's that every answer varies depending on the person and the time even. So that kid gets up to the bat and the coach, if the coach was more of a directive kind of coach, would say, Put your shoulder up. Put right. your wrist down. Get right. your head up. Right. But no, put it down a couple of inches. Turn right. a little bit to the left. Turn a little bit to the right. right. The kid's going to be stressing out at bat there. Oh, yeah. It's going to be hard to focus on actually hitting the ball. And more concentrating on whether their body's in the correct position rather yeah. than what they're trying to do. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I still feel like there's so much for us to talk about, and I'm going to have you back on the show again. (laughs) Dr. Jeff Stern, clinical psychologist and child psychologist in Honolulu, Hawaii. It's been great having you. Thanks. Take care. Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, please go to my website, www.waikikihealth.com. Please be sure to subscribe to Mind Tricks Podcast and accompanying blog 
to be notified of new episodes of Mind Tricks. Please be sure to follow Mind Tricks on Facebook by following and liking posts by myself, your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan.